Good morning. It's a commanding voice. Well, welcome to Flagstaff Christian Fellowship. If you're visiting, uh, if you are a new student here at NAU or and your family's up here also, please feel free to come up and introduce yourself after the message. I'd love to, to meet you. Uh, but as always, it's really good to be here with you and my church family. If you have a Bible, please open it and join me in John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and we would love to get one to you. Uh, you can hold on to it. You can keep it. You can keep it and give it away or you can just leave it in a chair when you leave. But we as a church family are making our way through the gospel of John. And our last week together, we had a re-overview of the whole gospel of John. And this week, our attention is confined to the first five verses of John 13. So if you would, look at John 13, verses 1 through 5, in this series called Following Jesus Together. As you take notes... The subtitle this morning is The Upper Room and the Glory of Jesus' Knowledge, Love, and Humility. It's the subtitle this morning. Well, if you would, beginning in John 13, let me read for us verses 1 through 5, and then we'll look to the Lord in prayer. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world... To the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, you have given a gift in the person of your Son that is exceedingly glorious. And we thank you for the gift of your spirit poured out upon us. And so we ask that your spirit would not only bring dead hearts to life and dark hearts to the light. But that your spirit would work in each and every one of our hearts to accomplish your gospel purposes. To magnify Jesus and to let us see the many sided splendor of his glory this morning and in seeing jesus that we would believe and trust and fix our eyes on him that you would satisfy our souls with your son and in doing so unite this church build this church and see your gospel go forth through all the gospel preaching churches in flagstaff so to that end lord would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, all of God's people said, Amen. We live in a world in which every human being shops around for someone or something to trust. Now, the 
current currents of our culture is that you should really just look within and trust yourself. But we live in this world where every human being shops around for someone or something to love and to be devoted to. And certainly we live in a a world of self-love. And we live in a world where every human being is shopping around for someone or something to fix their eyes on to know how to live, to live, move, and have their being in this world. But what we have seen over and over again is when Jesus, walking across the pages of the Gospel of John, is that anything or anyone other than Jesus, as that someone who we're looking to, will always fail and always let us down. And encounter after encounter, Jesus meets different people across the pages of Scripture, revealing himself, destroying their idols, whatever species of idol they have, and reveals himself to them. Now, as we saw last week, and as you look in your scriptures here, if you look up into chapter 12, you'll see that just in chapter 12 was the triumphal entry and Jesus' anointing in Bethany. And now this change, a significant change in, the, in John's telling of the gospel account, here in chapter 13, you probably have a heading from your uh, translators saying Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And then on we go into what's commonly called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. These are Jesus's final words to his 12 disciples before he goes to the cross. We saw last time that we went from three years worth of content to now about three hours of content in next these, these next five chapters. And the disciples don't know it, but Jesus's crucifixion for our sins, is less than 24 hours away. A few verses from now, Judas is going to get up and leave and go betray Jesus. And if you think from the disciples' perspective, Jesus is going to begin to unfold amazing and glorious and yet to them confusing words, not understanding that he is about to go to the cross and all that that entails. And so the betrayal and the crucifixion, as they're just a few hours away, are more than enough human grounds for fear and for panic and for hopelessness, for depression and confusion and all sorts of mayhem in one's heart to to riddle the disciples' hearts. Jesus is about to be crucified. And so here at the Passover, before Jesus begins this This long, lengthy conversation, he's really a one-way discourse he's going to have with them. And then his prayer for the next five chapters. The Apostle John, writing this book, does something nearly identical to what he does in the beginning of the book. Just as John opens with John 1, and he is the narrator who steps onto the pages of Scripture and begins to explain some things... John does the same thing here in these opening verses, these first five verses of John 13, to pull back the curtains and to give you and me uh, an insider's scoop, a glimpse of what was going on inside Christ in our triune God and God's unfolding gospel plan. He's letting us see who Jesus is in himself before we hear the things that Jesus says and see the things that Jesus is going to do. John's aim, he does this 
to untrouble our hearts from the troubles that are to come. Namely, the betrayals, the crucifixion, the burial, but then the resurrection. We see more of Jesus in these opening five verses and less of the problems and problems and confusions ahead. In other words, these five verses wave as a banner over the remainder of the book. And so we get this insider knowledge, this behind-the-scenes director's cut view of what's going on in this, this final gospel account. And the aim is to untrouble our hearts from the troubles to come so that we would believe in Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, here is our outline this morning regarding what we learn of Christ. Point number one, Jesus is glorious in his knowledge. Therefore, you should trust in him. And we're going to jump around a little bit, a couple stones to skip on. Verses 1, verses 3, and verses 11. Then into point 2, Jesus is glorious in his love. Therefore, you should love him in return. And then finally, Jesus is glorious in his humility. Therefore, you should fix your eyes on him. And we'll look at verse 2 and then verses 4 and 5. Well, that's where we're going this morning. Let's look at this first point together. Point number one, Jesus is glorious in his knowledge. Therefore, you should trust in him. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus, and note the word here, tune your ears to hear the things that Jesus knows. John tells us things that Jesus knows. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Skip down to verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God. And then cheat ahead to verse 11. Verse 11, we're not going that far other than right now. We'll look at that next week. For he, Jesus, knew who was to betray him. Jesus is, as I mentioned, about to once again, across the Gospel of John... Drop the most shocking news on the disciples. He's going to be betrayed and he is going to go lay down his life for his sheep, for his friends, and he's going to return to the Father. The disciples hear these words, but they don't get these words. It's the Passover feast, the Last Supper. Jesus has closed his public ministry, and now the text slows down from three years to three hours. And Jesus is going to privately minister to his disciples. It's going to be an emotional night as we get into these next unfolding verses and chapters in the coming weeks. It's an emotional night. It's a confusing night. It will be Jesus's last night with the twelve this side of the cross and empty tomb. And so Jesus is not only preparing his disciples... With these words, Jesus is preparing you and me. We are given a glimpse 
of something the disciples did not get. And so mirroring, as I said earlier, John chapter 1, this second section of the book, we get this behind-the-scenes glimpse to assure our troubled hearts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, John does that for us in these opening verses by revealing to us what Jesus divinely knew. So you can look at somebody and you can think you know what they're thinking, but you don't know what they're thinking, especially the men in the room. What are you thinking? Nothing. So so we are given a glimpse into what Jesus thinks. The curtains are pulled back and we are given five truths in these five verses that reveal to us not just what Jesus knows, but more importantly, who Jesus is. He has divine knowledge because he is the son of the living God. He is the true God man, truly God and truly man. And these five truths in these five verses are to reveal to us what Jesus himself knew going into this Last Supper, this farewell discourse. And in doing so, it's designed to lead you and me to worship and to trust. So what did Jesus know? I I wonder if you've ever thought about this question. Did Jesus come out of the womb with perfect knowledge as a man and look up at Mary and say, hello, mother. You, we kind of get squirrely with our thoughts of, of, of what Jesus knew in his humanity, but scripture tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature. He grew in knowledge. And so, so there is a point where Jesus in his life early on knew that he was the Messiah Christ. But John is uniquely showing us what Jesus knows as we go into these final verses. So first, Verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now that word hour serves as shorthand for this final period of time. Sometimes scripture says the day or that day or the hour. Here the hour is shorthand for the period of time that's going to include his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his beatings, the crucifixion, the coronation with a crown of thorns, the death for our sins, his burial, and his devil-defeating resurrection. That's his hour. And Jesus knew it was all coming. He knew it was all coming. But this serves in contrast to chapter 2, verse 4, when he told his mother Mary that his hour had not yet come. And so that's a refrain across the Gospel of John is that his hour is not yet. His hour is not yet. His hour is not yet. Jesus now knows his hour has come to depart out of this world and go to the Father. This is going to surprise the disciples. It's going to shock them. But not Jesus. Not Jesus with his perfect and divine knowledge. This is not a surprise. This is not out of God's control. The betrayals, the arrests, the trials, the beatings, the crucifixion, and death for our sins. None of it is out of his control. It's all part of his gospel plan. And John needs to remind you and me that it's always been his plan. Nothing happened to him that was not part of his plan. Jesus is in Control. Jesus knew that his hour had come. And because of that, 
all the things unfold in the rest of chapter 13, which we'll see as time unfolds. But we also see second, and now glance down to verse 11. What else did Jesus know? Secondly, verse 11, for he, Jesus, knew who was to betray him. Jesus had this secret and divine knowledge. He knew his planned hour was at hand, but he also knew who he had planned that would trigger the clock, so to speak, of that hour, namely Judas. He knew who his betrayer was. Judas doing what Judas wanted to do. Judas selling him out. Jesus knew who was to betray him. And so it's no shock or surprise that the betrayal is going to come. It will hurt, but it's not a surprise. Third, in verse 3, glancing back up, we see that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... You see, as the truly divine and truly human son, Jesus, because of his perfect loving obedience to the Father in all of his life and his incarnation, to the cross, into the grave, and out of the grave, the Father, not some things, not most things, not certain things, but the Father has placed all things Into Christ's hands. And this knowledge means that when Jesus is going into the supper. And preparing to wash the disciples feet. And to be betrayed by Judas. And all that's to come when they get to the garden. And and on it goes. It all is in Christ's hands. There is nothing of all created things. That does not belong to King Jesus. His perfect life and perfect death in our place earned for us the salvation that we could not earn for ourselves. And because of the glory of who he is, King Jesus owns it all. He has jurisdiction, right and might over all things. There is nothing over which Jesus does not say mine. You belong to Jesus. And not just your body belonging to Jesus, your thoughts belong to Jesus. He says, those are mine. Your emotions belong to Jesus. Your attitudes belong to Jesus. Your philosophies belong to Jesus. Your politics and voting belong to Jesus. Everything belongs to Jesus. There's nothing in us and of us and us collectively that Jesus does not say mine. And Jesus Knew that. And as this third verse unfolds, we see fourth and fifth together of what Jesus knew. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. However, the mystery of the incarnation works. The eternal son taking on a true human nature and body. Jesus, as the son of David... He knew that he was also the eternal divine son. And by implication, he knew that he would be resurrected after his crucifixion. And he knew that he would return to the father. Jesus knew that he had come from God. That is something mind boggling to think about. As the divine son, he knew. And he also knew then 
that just as he came from God, he was returning back to God. But the question stands, why is John telling us all of these amazing realities at this moment in the gospel account? Why do verses 1 through 5 sit where they sit? Why don't we just go into Jesus wrapping a towel around his waist and going to wash the disciples' feet? Why? For many reasons, but let me point out one. He's pointing these out for troubled hearts. These truths about Jesus, knowing his hour had come, knowing he'd come from God, was going to God, knowing who'd betray him, knowing that all things were in his hands, these are truths for troubled hearts. Well, how can I say that? If you just look over at chapter 14, look at the opening verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's verse 1. Do you know why he said that? He had just told Peter that Peter was going to betray him. And then prior to that, he had told them that he was going to leave and depart. The news of Jesus' crucifixion and departure was only troubling to the hearts of the disciples. And so this is about untroubling troubled hearts. But Jesus is not troubled. Jesus is confident. Jesus is resolute. Jesus is unshaken here in John's account. And because of who Jesus is and what he does and what he knows and the untroubledness of his own heart, for his people, we are to lead and live untroubled lives. Jesus is glorious in his knowledge, so we should not fear, but rather trust in him. How does this work in our lives? You may not know if the job search is going to pan out, but Jesus does. You you may not know what the test results will be, but Jesus does. You may not know if it's going to work out to the plan that you've established, but Jesus does. See, listen, you, you might be here this morning and not know Christ. Outside of Jesus... You do legitimately have every reason to only and always fear the uncertainties of this world and even worse, to fear the wrath of God to come against you. There is uncertainty in this unstable world, but we worship a stable God. And those who are in Christ, these glimpses of what Jesus knew is not the sum total of what Jesus knew. But if Jesus knows these things, Jesus knows All things, especially now that he has risen, ascended, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Christ, trusting Jesus as the atonement for our sins, in Christ, his perfect love casts out all fear. Friends, I know that you're like me. I know that you walk through these doors with many troubles troubling you, fears and uncertainties and more. And what this text does is it takes our eyes off of ourselves and off of our uncontrollable circumstances. And by the way, you think you control your circumstances and you don't. And we think we control these things and it takes us off ourselves into Jesus and seeing Jesus' glorious knowledge. Therefore, do not fear, but trust in him. That's who Jesus is. That's what John is showing us 
a glimpse that we get that disciples don't yet get. And Jesus is glorious in his knowledge, therefore do not fear, but trust in him. And secondly, point number two, Jesus is glorious in his love for you. Therefore, love him in return. Look again at verse 1. Now we've seen what Jesus has known, so our attention is going to be confined to those final statements in the end of verse 1. But listen to the verse again. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, and here it is, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. Do you see the words? To the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. You see, Jesus, who is glorious in his knowledge, is also glorious in his love. And, and do you see here in this text who Jesus loved? Right? You might think of John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But here at this Passover feast, looking at the twelve before him, do you see here who Jesus loved? It's a particular love. It's a specific love. It's a deliberate love. His own who were in the world. And he loved them to the end. Dear friends, there is so much assurance to wring out of the truths of this text. And all of us struggle with our assurance. Am I really saved? If anything, though, think with me, the failures and foibles and follies of the disciples would be cause for Jesus not to love them to the end. All the people in the Bible, except for Jesus, bear witness to the fact that God would be justified in not loving us. Take Peter. We only need to take one example. Uh, If we were to cheat back to Matthew 16, right after Jesus makes his great gospel confession, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying, in essence, that he was going to atone for the sins of his people. And so Jesus had to rebuke Peter, calling him Satan. So he went from the high point of confessing the gospel, first gospel confession, to then basically functioning as an adversary, functioning as Satan. Or a little further down in our text at hand here in John 13, uh, Peter is washing the disciples' feet. And when he gets to Peter, what does Peter say? No, don't wash, wash my feet. And then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And then, Jesus, then Peter says, wash all of me. And this guy is a guy given to extremes. <laughs> but he's refusing Jesus to wash his feet. Or, if you're to peek ahead at the end of chapter 13, we see how Jesus tells Peter, Je- Jesus prophesies, Peter, by the time the crow has crowed, or the rooster rather, Three times, you have betrayed me. You see, that is sufficient evidence in Peter's life for Jesus not to love Peter to the end. And if we're honest with ourselves, 
we might be able to see that there's a portfolio of reasons in each and every one of our own lives, proof that maybe Jesus might be justified to not love you to the end. And, and maybe that puts words to what you're feeling where, you know, um, Jesus is probably going to love everybody else to the end, but me, not so much. That Jesus has a, a low-grade annoyance with you at best and maybe doesn't really like you at worst. We still exhibit, each and every one of us, daily evidence why we are not worthy for Jesus to love us. What we tend to do is to measure and compare and console our sins. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And think that we can kind of sneak into the kingdom that way. Or, or somehow get a little bit more of God's love because of those things. But we fool ourselves because only one sin is necessary to condemn us to an eternity in hell. And so we daily exhibit evidence of why we're not worthy for Jesus to love us to the end. And that begs a question. Why would Jesus give so much for those who give up on him? You ever thought about that? Because that's also not just an abstract idea. The question really is, why did Jesus give so much for you who gives up on him in those moments where sin is more alluring, enticing than the glory of Christ? If that's the case then how could I possibly say earlier there is so much assurance to ring out of, of this text that we're looking at, so much gospel truth? That's because you and I can't help it but by always having a wrong definition of what love is. The false and fickle definition of love in our world is baked into us and the gospel is trying to cook it out however that metaphor might work. We live in a world where love is self-centered and narcissistic. People enter into a love relationship, and that love relationship is not based on the object of love, but what the object of love gives to me. And when I don't feel the feels anymore, you're not doing it for me, I'm out. And I'm going to go to the next thing. The next thing or the next person, love is a lie in our culture. Don't believe it. It's fickle. It's fake. It's false. It is self-centered and narcissistic. And what we tend to do is to think that that's how Jesus loves us. It ebbs and flows and waxes and wanes. And sometimes he's happy and sometimes he's mad. And maybe he pulls away his love and maybe he gives it or something. He, we think really that he treats us like we treat others. Praise God he doesn't. That's not biblical love. It's not true love. It's not the right definition of love. Godly love is not self-centered. It's other-oriented, flowing from the triune God himself, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and overflowing and out of him to all of creation. Godly love is an other-oriented, not self-centered love. And godly love is not mere feeling only, there is emotion. No, it is feeling that decisively acts 
It's not a sentiment alone. It's a sentiment that gives action. Godly love, biblical love, is not just a feeling. It's a feeling that decisively acts for Christ's best of the other. That's the definition of love. Even to the point of laying down your life for someone else. Now let's see if we can unpack this a little bit more. When our translators are translating our Bibles, especially in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament meaning of love is what undergirds the love spoken of here in John 13. In the Bible, love is always covenantal. It's never not covenantal, divine love. And so our translators, we're trying to look at these Hebrew words and figure out how best can we take this word love in Hebrew and convey it into English. And so there's a host of terms that you've heard of before that are trying to convey what love is. And so you variously hear it translated as steadfast love or loyal love or covenant love faithfulness or unfailing love or loving kindness. Those are translators trying to capture how does the Bible self-define biblical love. And so these are these two words that come out. Again, steadfast love, a love that will never end and never fail and will never give up. Loyal love, the loyalty that has no betrayal in it. The, the covenant faithfulness. They're going to keep the promises oathed to someone else. That's covenant faithfulness. Unfailing love means that it won't quit and can't be extinguished. And loving kindness. Jesus is kind in his love for us. And that's what stands behind what John is telling us about Jesus' love for his own. Here it is again. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Can you begin to sense the assurance? God's love in Christ is not based on your performance For him. It's based on his election of you. God's love in Christ is not based on your perfection. It's based on Christ's perfection. God's love in Christ is not sourced in you. God's love in Christ for you is sourced in God. Overflowing to you. You can't run away from it. You can't shake it off and you can't extinguish it. That is why Jesus would give so much up for those who give up on him. That is why, dear friends, Christ loves you. Do you need proof? Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. He has atoned for your sins, past, present, and future. He got up and he has defanged the devil and defeated death. He's risen, he's ascended, and he's comfortably on his throne. And so God's love for us, we turn it into a fickle, performance-based love that if we extinguish it, we've lost our salvation. No. That's why this is so, there's so much insurance, assurance. He loved them, the text says, to the end. Take Peter again. 
He knows that Peter's going to say, don't wash my feet. He knows in this very chapter that Peter is going to deny me three times. He knows that's coming. He knows that after the crucifixion and the burial, they're going to go back to fishing. They're going to go back to their old job. Dejected, despondent, depressed. They're going to leave. He knows all these things are going to happen. And John tells us up front so we don't lose it. That didn't change Jesus' love for his people. And so Jesus looks ahead in your life because he is the God man. And he knows tonight and tomorrow and next year and so on. And he is going to love you to the end. That's called good news. Worship the Lord and love him. Have you given up on Jesus this morning? Come back to him. He's a willing savior. Find that he is still loving you to the end. In fact, that his love for you is what brought you back to him from your waywardness. Do you walk around with low-grade suspicion that God doesn't like you very much as a Christian? Brother and sister, Jesus is loving you to the end. If you struggle with that assurance, if you're suspicious that Christ is suspicious of you, you need to surround yourself with gospel ambassadors, and here they are, who will remind you of the gems and jewels of the good news of Jesus so that your self-talk, which lies to you, can get the God talk into you. Remind yourself with a chorus of people who remind you of Jesus loving you to the end. Become proficient when you awake in the morning to be an evangelist to yourself. Preach the gospel to those unevangelized territories of your soul where we are prone to disbelieving Jesus or those theological wires haven't connected yet. And so we need to remind ourselves that God the Son, for the joy set before Him, Endure the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him on the cross was seeing the host of people that he would spill his blood for, and more than that, to show the world his love for the Father. That's the joy set before him. Jesus didn't give up, give up on Peter. He won't give up on you. After all, We love him because he first loved us. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. That's not just for the disciples. It's for all of his disciples, you and me. You see, Jesus is not only glorious in his knowledge, so we should not fear but trust him. Jesus is not only glorious in his love, so we should love him in return, but... Third, Jesus is glorious in his humility. Therefore, you should fix your eyes on him. Look again at verse 2, down to verse 5. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, And here's verses 4 and 5. Rose from supper. Laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Did you feel that cold draft that blew through the words of Scripture? Did you, did you see, did you hear verse 2? The cold and dark draft of verse 2, we discover that during supper, the devil had already put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. What John, writing this, has just done is he's taking it from the magnificent summit of Everest, of the glories of Christ's knowledge, the glories of Christ's love, to the immediate dungeons of darkness and the depths of the dead heart of the devil's work in Judas. If Jesus is glorious in his knowledge and glorious in his love, and Judas, filled with the devil, putting it into his heart to betray Jesus. The contrast could not be greater. Judas, hate-filled, betrayal, selfishness, Pride, God belittling. John has positioned these texts to juxtaposition how luminous the light of Jesus is and how deep the darkness of the dark of the devil is. That, that's what he is doing here. Verse 2 is arrests us in our tracks as we're reading and we, we think to ourselves that this is insane. And it is by definition. Judas is out of his mind because his sin has caused him to hate the light. The darkness hates the light. And so this is dropped in there to set this foreboding tone of what's to come. But how shocking it is that there's someone who can hear all of Jesus' teaching, see all of Jesus' miracles, and the net result being... I hate Jesus. The knowledge of Christ, the love of Christ, and here, the hatred of Christ from the devil himself. And this backdrop shows us how diabolical evil is. It is, it is to put that horrible taste in our mouth, to spit it out. But yet we see then, in this hinge of verse 2, how diabolical evil is, but then how much more compoundingly glorious and wonderful Jesus is. His glorious knowledge, his glorious love, the evil of evil, and then now verse 5, the response, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Jesus took a towel. He tied it around his waist. He stripped down. He's had a towel around his waist, and then he pours water into the basin and then one by one was Judas first one by one including Judas Jesus goes through this towel wrapped around him and he washes his feet the one glorious in knowledge glorious in love is now glorious in humility even washing the feet of his betrayer the one who knew that he came from God And is going back to the Father, this puny, insignificant devil, he is permitting through Judas to accomplish these purposes. 
Jesus, who has all things in his hands, possessing all authority, he can stop and crush Satan with his words. Same with Judas. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. And said he put a towel around his waist. That's what Jesus is like. That's what our triune God is like. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loving them to the end, Jesus puts on a towel. Soon to dismiss Judas to betray him, knowing his disciples would fall asleep in the garden, later abandon him and betray him too. Remember the, all the evidences of lack of love on our part? With all this, Jesus, the high king of heaven, king of kings, lord of lords, god of heaven, got up and put a slave's towel on his waist to wash their dirty feet. What did it sound like in the room when that happened? What did it sound like for the water to fall into that basin? The perplexity in the hearts of his followers looking at him? What did Judas think? He knew, he'd already sold Jesus out. What would it have felt like to have Jesus kneel before you and put his hands on your sandaled feet and wash and then taking his own clothing to to dry your feet what would have been like to look and watch him do that with judas dear church behold your god That's what Jesus is like, glorious in his humility. It's who Jesus is and who Jesus always will be. And it's because of who Jesus is as the one glorious in knowledge, glorious in love. And now we see glorious and unthinkable humility. It's because of these things that you ought to have confidence to fix your eyes on Jesus and trust Him, love Him, and follow Him. This is why we sing and are going to sing later. This is why I am preaching and why we have gathered together here is because this God-man, Jesus the Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, has become flesh for us and washed the feet of His disciples. I think the Apostle Paul reflects on this moment and he explains it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with thing with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the Holy Spirit has pulled back these curtains. He is preparing our hearts and sowing the seed of His Word in it as we read Scripture further so that we might behold Jesus and believe Jesus and so that our hearts would be untroubled by the troubles to come. And instead, that you would trust Jesus, that you would love Jesus, and that you would keep your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus because He alone is glorious in knowledge, love, and humility. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the gift, the matchless, priceless, inexhaustible gift of the grace of Jesus Christ and the glorious gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you are everything for us that we cannot be for ourselves, which is everything, and that we can believe you. And in believing you, trust you, love you, and imitate you. Father, I pray that you would now open our hearts to sing your praises. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, we're going to stand now to sing a song to further push God's word into our hearts. And I'll come back up after the song to lead us to the Lord's table.
You will find on the ground or a chair in front of you the Lord's Supper prepared. It's a custom among us to participate in communing with our Lord, reenacting this Passover meal that he shared with his disciples every week. And I encourage you to, to begin to open these. If, if you are a believer and you're visiting from somewhere else, we invite you to partake with us. If you're not yet a Christian, please do not participate with us. There's no strangeness or awkwardness with that. But this is a covenant meal that shows that we are in union with Christ. We follow him. We've repented of our sins. And that this meal reenacts Christ's broken body and shed blood for us on the cross. You eat this because you believe this. And we believe this together. So the team will lead us in a moment of instrumental to reflect. I encourage you to pray with somebody perhaps you came with or feel comfortable with. And then I'll lead us to partake in a few moments. this evening of the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, knowing he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Jesus Christ together. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So remember the new covenant the Lord has made with us. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we worship you. And pray that now, from the overflow of our hearts, that you would magnify Jesus in this place through the songs that we sing and the fellowship that we engage in. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, let's stand for these final two songs. Behold, robed in majesty, 